Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you, everyone, for joining here on the program. We're broadcasting out of Wilmington, North Carolina on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, and on Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, broadcasting from the home studio. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who is outside of Toronto, Ontario, uh, probably waking up to a nice, fine morning. David, sir, how goes it? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. We, uh, we're on the heels of uh, what turned out to be a very pointless election, so recovering from that. Uh, but other than that, you know what? Things, things are pretty good. Pointless election. And um, I guess you know, we're all in the business of self-promo here, David, so I will point listeners over to uh, the podcast interview that you did that gives a pretty in-depth detail about the election. Uh, it's the Heard Tell podcast with uh, former guest Andrew Donaldson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like uh, being invited on another kind of podcast program? Oh, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was, it's fun to just give an explanation of the Canadian political system, the parties, the leaders. Um, because, I mean, when you're kind of engulfed in something like that, you don't usually take a step back to try and explain it like from a bird's eye view to an outsider. So, um, Lots of fun. Um, yeah, I highly encourage people to listen to that if if they want a longer form version of my take on what happened in this election. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a good one. So that's, uh, yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes over there on consumerchoiceradio.com, where, by the way, you can get all of our podcast versions, uh, the YouTube videos of the interviews that we conduct with our guests, and much more. And uh, we will provide the full interview that we'll be featuring this hour. Uh, we're speaking with Alan Konevsky. He's the CEO and the chief, I'm sorry, interim CEO, can't mess that up, <laughs> and uh, the chief legal officer of T0, uh, which is a yet another cryptocurrency uh, app, platform, company. Um, this one is fairly interesting, though, David, because it was founded by the company known as, um, Jesus, what's the name? Um, Patrick Burns Company, Overstock. Oh, Overstock, yeah. yeah. So yes, so this company was founded by Overstock, by Patrick Byrne, uh, who's a very eccentric, uh, smart character. Uh, he, he, yeah, he kind of went off the deep end a little bit. Haven't we all? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the uh, interview is very interesting. Uh, we can't play the whole thing because it's a, a, a tad long. So we are going to provide the full interview, uh, if you guys are still listening, um, either in the podcast version or over there on our YouTube channel, which we'll link to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he deals a lot with the crypto regulation, and, and they pride themselves on having followed all of the rules uh, when it comes to that. And um, I guess another plug, since we're in the beginning, uh, the Consumer Choice Center, which David and I uh, both work at, uh, this week, we released the Principles for Smart Crypto Regulation. So if you are interested in that, we've got a nice little primer. Uh, ain't too long, only about four pages about what lawmakers, legislators, and public officials should take into account when they're trying to regulate, understand, or generally provide frameworks for the cryptocurrency industries and Bitcoin. Yeah. Have fun there. Yeah, especially for folks who maybe don't really understand like the nuances of what is 
good regulation, what isn't uh, good regulation, um, it's a very useful tool because I mean, it can be a pretty intimidating subject um, if you aren't really engulfed in, in that space. So highly recommend that. So speaking of useful tools, David, <laughs> let's talk about the election a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Are oh you not useful O-tools, if I can even make a better pun? Yeah. Um, I mean, what a what an outcome to, to end up basically where we were before. We, we pushed Canadians to the polls in the middle of a fourth wave while Afghanistan was unraveling, while British Columbia is on fire, all to basically have the same minority government that we had before. Um, and I, 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 the, basic, the, the way I sum it up is it, it looks like Trudeau got caught being greedy. Uh, now, he wasn't fully punished for it by losing, um, but he certainly didn't win in terms of their own metrics. Um, I mean, they've never gotten, uh, no government in Canadian history has ever got that little of the, the popular vote. They didn't win the popular vote. Um, so just a, a bad outcome if you're a liberal partisan who was hoping for a majority government, but also not a great outcome for the conservatives who, if you're a partisan conservative, many thought that this was another winnable election, just like 2019 was. So it just kind of feels like everybody lost. Uh, everybody lost. and <laughs> Everybody's taxpayer, a loser. Yeah, taxpayers lost because it was like $610 million. Um, and so where does that leave us now? I don't know. Here's a question that I've, I've seen that number, $600 million. So Canada does have this type of public financing of elections. Where mm -hmm. is most of this money? Is it like in setting up all of the election bureaus? Is it mostly in the campaigning? Like where is all that money? Where does that actually so go? And how do we it. get it? <laughs> yeah, so th that's actually the cost of running Elections Canada. So it's all of your chief returning officers at the at each polling station. It's all of the people who are paid to help process everything. It went into also like the PPE and re and and the joke, the ongoing joke was like everybody got a pencil because they let you take the pencil because they weren't reusing them. So, <laughs> so it was like, okay, go get your pencil today. Um, was the joke on Twitter. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that actually goes into it. And I, I'm not complaining that it costs that much money to run an election because I really, I mean, you want to have safe, secure, and fair elections. And so if it costs money to ensure that everyone's properly trained and it's done the right way, um, that's fine. The big thing for me was the election was called without losing the confidence of the house so there was nothing forcing this election to happen now. Um, Trudeau requested it, and he requested it at a really strange time. And so it's like, well, we probably didn't have to spend that money now to do this to end up right where we were before. Yeah, there's not going to be too many changes, as you, as you mentioned. It all comes down to the numbers in the parliament. Um, what do you think is going to be their first sort of policy thing that they're going to put out there? Because I know essentially he was fishing for more support so that they could basically do everything without having to work with any of the other parties. I mean, is there something that he's bringing to the table right away? Because as far as I can tell throughout the campaign, it was mostly about hating on the conservatives and how uh, they all love guns and uh, hate abortion or something like this. So there, there were, didn't seem as if there were too many substantive things that they were 
ready to change? That's kind of the question is like, you want this majority, but like, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Apart from so, spend a lot of money. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I really just think the liberals are going to spend a lot of time bending to the NDP. Um, so what that means in the short term, um, I mean, we'll really see where the pandemic goes. Um, I don't have as optimistic of a view as I once did in terms of like the end date. And so, so long as things are progressing or the pandemic is still continuing on, there's going to be a lot of pressure from the NDP to increase support levels or maintain them or add in new programs and all of these other things. Um, so I think though that'll be the, the short term. Uh, the medium term will probably be the continued rollout of, of uh, the liberal daycare plan because um, childcare plan, because uh, Singh had said that he would have supported the liberals on that without an election. Um, so I could, ex I, I think I expect that to come down, um, come down the pipe, which I'm not, I don't love the plan. Um, I think it would just be better to take whatever you were going to spend and distribute that as cash to parents as like a, a childcare bonus. That way, if you have unusual work schedule, you're on nights, you're, you have a, a different like family setup or makeup in terms of who you want to look after your kids, having $10 daycare, I mean, sounds great, right? For parents who currently pay way too much. Um, but it would probably just be better to give parents cash because they can then use that to find whatever the childcare options are best for them, rather than it just being federally recognized daycare centers, which are going to become increasingly more difficult to find. And it really puts the onus on, um, on the government to deal with expansion rather than leaning on the private sector or just leaning on different options. Are you going to maybe have a grandparent step in and be able to compensate them for that? Are you going to find other care in your community? Are you maybe going to take some time off work? Like there are all sorts of different ways in which, um, in which you can deal with the issue of childcare. And so I'm not really pleased about it because it's, it's very, it, it comes with a lot of strings. And uh, one thing that you mentioned on the podcast with Andrew was about how the conservative party in this instance did not take the Trump strategy no, <laughs> and uh, actually very much moved to the center mm -hmm. um, sort of it, throughout the election. I'm seeing a lot of the morning press and uh, the uh, talking heads, as it were, mention that this was not a good idea. It was a failed policy. It was uh, the conservatives uh, undermining. What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I didn't mind it during like during the campaign, I actually really appreciated um, Aaron O'Toole's tone because he just came across as someone who was maybe a little less angry, a little more polished, especially in, in comparison to Trudeau. He just, he seemed a little more statesman-like. Uh, but the whole idea of doing that is to attract votes where I live in the 905, the area surrounding the GTA, and it didn't work. The liberals swept um, the whole area. And these are supposed to be competitive ridings. And so you ticked off a lot of the base um, by moving to the left on some key policies, but it didn't give you any electoral advantage in uh, 
uh, in Ontario. Um, and so in hindsight, you can go, well, was it worth it? Probably not. Um, maybe we could revisit this in two years uh, on episode 480 or whatever it'll be when we probably go back to the, the polls again. Um, and if O'Toole stays on, maybe solidifying the I'm not scary tone uh, is, is more of a long-term strategy, but that all rests on whether O'Toole remains as leader of the conservatives, which I think is a pending question. Yeah, I know you, you talked about that as well with Andrew. It's it's uh, yet another recycling, yet another leader. Mm-hmm. You know, is it all about the leader failing? Is it just about the moment? Is it just, you know, the Canadian system and the saturation of seats and how it works? I mean, looking at it and, and the you know, f- sort of having participated, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that there's a lot of people who, you know, you go to vote, but it'd be interesting to look at all the different writings and see how many of them were actually competitive. Do you know, like offhand, what that number could be? Because how many writings actually did change yeah. overall? And like how many were just blowouts that will probably likely never change or something? Yeah, so um, there were some important flips. So a couple of liberal cabinet ministers lost, one of them in, no- in Newfoundland, uh, another in Ontario. Um, so there was some like irritation that was there. Uh, I think there were about 30 ridings that were close uh, within a thousand or, or 2000 votes between the two, uh, the liberals and the conservatives or the liberal or the conservatives and the NDP. So that's positive um, in terms of whatever happens in the next election, but you have to have some sort of strategy to build in those tight races. Um, now, a lot of people are talking about vote splitting, with the PPC, uh, I think probably it's generous to say that half of PPC voters are angry conservatives. I think the other half are largely former Green Party voters because their support collapsed, um, or people who are just irritated with uh, other other kind of political options. And so we'll get to more uh, about that after the break. Um, But I'm not sure that the PPC really spoiled anything beyond five seats or so for the Conservatives. All right, we'll see. Let's uh, talk about it a bit more. We'll be right back on Consumer Choice Radio. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, Yael, we were just talking about vote splitting just to kind of complete that thought, um, I realistically think that the PPC probably cost the Conservatives five seats, which really doesn't change the outcome of the election. Um, what I will say, though, and I will say that this concerns me, is we have a minority government. That means we're probably going back to the polls within the next two and a half years. If it was longer than that, it, I would be a st- it would be shocking. Um, Pandemic restrictions are now ramping up in terms of vaccine passports. Uh, I don't see mask mandates being lifted. I mean, I want to say earlier than 12 months from now, but I'm I'm doubtful. Um, And the longer that those exist, the more support the PPC will get. So they're at 5%, which is more than doubling where they were in the last election. And so if those conditions with the pandemic remain, 
I only expect their support to increase, not because people will become anti-vaxxers or um, certainly the, the anti-vaxxers vote for the PPC, but the longer these restrictions exist and remain in place, the less, the, the, the more likely ordinary people will become increasingly irritated. And if you have one party who's, that's their wedge issue, they're gonna become more attractive. And so for those who are worried about the growth of the PPC, uh, it's, it, I think your, your concern is, is well-founded because at 5%, they're more than the Greens. If they go into the next election at 8 9 10%, well, that probably maybe gets them a seat if they have better voter efficiency. Um, and that makes them a more significant player in terms of the Canadian political system. So um, I can imagine if there's a by-election or something, which, you know, you always have somebody resigns or something happens, um, someone gets promoted or something like that, you could have a situation where there's some by-election, there's all this concentration that could change things. I mean, I know these things are never uh, indicative of something much bigger, but, hmm. you know, if you have enough concentrated support in a particular area, that could be uh, could be really interesting. Yeah, I think for the PPC, the only scenario where a by-election could serve them up a win would be in a rural Alberta riding, because uh, there were some where the PPC got 15, 18, 20 percent. Um, and the response in Alberta now has gone backwards uh, because their COVID rates had, have spiked. And so if, there's in, if, if those systems remain in place, and then heaven forbid uh, something tragic happens um, or someone resigns, I could see that being the avenue uh, for a PPC seat. Um, but I, I don't think there's any viability for them to win a by-election really anywhere else in the country. So let's look at, um, if you guys want to get to fuller take on uh, the election, the breakdown, again, mm -hmm. go listen to that interview on the Herd Tell podcast with Andrew Donaldson. Uh, I've also been a guest, so it was a nice, fun time. Mm -hmm. David, there's a story here in National Post. I think this is important for everybody. Um, Ontario portal to download vaccination proof temporarily shut down on the first day of the certification system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so question for you, have you, because you have proudly stated that you've gotten the jab and such, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. have you had to flash your proof or do anything to go anywhere? How has that worked for you? Yeah, so uh, for the gym that I work out at, I basically preemptively showed them my ID and my, uh, I just have the PDF saved on my phone um, yesterday so that they don't have to ask me every day. But that's the only instance where I've had to use it. But I, I assume that, I mean, we're going to go to restaurants. We're going to listen to that flex. You don't have to ask me every day when I'm in the gym. <laughs> well, so it's, a, it's uh, I, that sounds kind of like, oh, what a, what a giant concern. Um, but so the, the thing that I'm the, where I was working out is, is uh, a class. So it's called orange theory fitness. And with the actual pandemic restrictions, you're not allowed to show up more than like five minutes before the class. And so it would actually be a logistic nightmare if you're trying to register the vaccination records of 30 people prior to each class. Um, it would, it would, probably cause some irritation and some delays. So I'm glad that that's out of the way. I don't have to keep doing that, but I mean, I'm prepared to, to show that wherever else I need to. The, the thing that, that 
I mean, I think it makes sense, but it really highlights like the, some of the irritation that people will have is the reward for getting vaccinated is today. So today uh, or this week is, is when the, the passport system is implemented. The reward is just simply being able to continue to do what you were doing before. So it's not like the, the density rates in restaurants are changing or you don't have to wear your mask in or out or all of the other rules with the vaccine passport. So there's no additional benefit other than just being able to do what you were already doing. Uh, so I wonder if there will be some irritation from that because it's like, well, I got my vaccine. You're allowing for me to do what I was able to do last week without the vaccine passport. Nothing's changed yeah. other than you adding this in. Absolutely no carrot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's um, you know, and I know that this has been ramped up a bit. And if we look at the U.S., uh, we talked about sort of Joe Biden's uh, actions on that and OSHA. And, you know, it was very different, at least when last time I was, you know, prancing around uh, throughout the streets. Mm-hmm. Basically, there was nowhere where people would ask it. I mean, I would assume at the doctor, maybe they would have some kind of, you know, private uh, thing where they would ask or at least to know, but it's kind of out of favor. You know, you go to Buffalo Wild Wings, you got to show your Vax Pass. I think uh, a lot of people <laughs> are still, still off put by this. You know, they just want to have those atomic hot wings. Um, but that, that, that's heating up. And I can only imagine, because we've seen government is not very good at technology. Terrible. It really isn't. And Terrible. every single one of these, we can we can go back to the Obamacare website rollout that cost you know 200 million dollars and failed for the first month you know now we can look at the qr codes and at least in quebec i know the scandal was that the uh, qr codes of uh, the premier of the uh, francois Legault were easily kind of not hacked but pirated and then a bunch of yeah. people were just showing up at restaurants with, with his qr code <laughs> <laughs> yes um and there are some concerns because the province's actual like QR system doesn't come out for a few more weeks. And so you're just showing someone like either the paper version or the online version of the paper version. And um, it's the same. It's the same when you're getting alcoholic drinks, you know, at the Chili's or wherever the, uh, the casual spa or whatever. And it's like the server has to be the enforcer. You know, It's like, so now this guy, poor dude is working at the gym is there to determine whether your vaccination paper is valid or not. It's like, it's a strange onus that we, we put on people much like when 18 and 19 year old waiters have to check your ID to see if you're old enough to drink, which yeah. I had to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It does put enforcement on, uh, on staff and whether or not they're prepared. Like, I mean, if someone goes through the hassle of like creating a fake version of the PDF um, is, is, your minimum wage high school student who's seating people at a restaurant going to call somebody's bluff or are they even going to know what to look for? I mean, this is only in the interim period before the QR thing works, but like, I don't think so. Um, that puts them in a particularly difficult spot. Um, and so I bet I, I would assume that if someone does go through the trouble of that uh, in terms of creating something fake, they'll just likely get in wherever they need to anyway at least in the interim period. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I know that with all of the different uh, technological tools at our disposal, uh, it seems there's been a lot of failures on that front, and there will continue to be errors. 
Uh, that's kind of kind of how it all goes. Uh, yep. Dave, what else you got uh, coming up for us? Because we've got um, segment number three. We will talk about cryptocurrency regulation, DeFi banking, and everything else with the T0 CEO, interim CEO, Alan Konevsky, for those of you who are interested. Uh, but David, I know uh, election was a big deal. You got the Vax Pass stuff happening. What else is kind of uh, noodling your fancy here uh, this last week? Um, I mean... <sighs> It's uh, one of them that's that's come back up, which I wrote about. This is a completely different topic. What I wrote about this two years ago, and unfortunately not much has changed, but now the industry is finally trying to push back against the government is the excise tax system for cannabis. <laughs> so the, um, the, the way in which legal cannabis is taxed is just crushing the legal industry. And so they're starting to push back, which is great to see because, I mean, it crushing them. Um, yeah, that sucks for them. But at the end of the day, that sucks for consumers. That sucks for the people who are buying legal cannabis and it incentivizes people to buy it illegally, which still exists, I think, at a rate of about 50% here. Um, oh, man, that's, yeah. a, that's a terrible percentage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's it's certainly better than 100%, which would have been four years ago. Um, but it's not it's it's not something worth celebrating. Um, because it could be 10%. It could be way lower, way lower. Uh, and it should be way lower, but the Cannabis Act was written in such a way that it's a nightmare. And over, it, it really, it treats legal cannabis more like tobacco than it does like alcohol. And that's obviously a huge mistake. Yeah, we had our colleague, uh, Bill Vietz, who uh, follows this stuff in other, other countries who forwarded us the email uh, of the pre-rolled joints mm -hmm. in uh good old plain package style coming. And I can only assume this thing's going to be about 80 bucks a pop for four joints or something like this. I don't know, but the prices overall, I've noticed that as a um, occasional consumer um, for educational purposes, David, mm -hmm. wink, um, going to stores in Washington and Colorado and also in Quebec and Ontario, just seeing just how expensive it is. And yeah. I think what you're talking about with the excise taxes, I mean, that is the the actual cost. That's why it does cost that much. If we didn't have those taxes, if we had perhaps a, a different tax rate, we had reasonable taxation, you wouldn't have those prices be high. You wouldn't have people who are staying with their dealers and in the black market. But we don't learn. And it's much no. like with all the tech stuff and all the crypto stuff. It's because people get wide eyes looking at returns, looking at the money coming in, and they just want a piece of the pie. And yeah, and, and really what it means is for the people who were consuming cannabis prior to legalization, a lot of those people have just stayed in the illegal market. Um, they know who to call quicker, faster, cheaper, et cetera. Um, for new consumers, that's not the key, not so much. Um, so if you're a new consumer, you're you're more likely to be purchasing in the legal market just because you don't have the knowledge or the networks to know where to go to get it illegally. Um, but those people who were consuming cannabis prior to legalization, they do the majority of the cannabis purchasing in this country uh, because they're the 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 legacy consumer base. Um, and so if you can't get those people to switch, well, you, we're never going to have the outcomes that we want or need. And so that's, that's a big problem long-term. Yeah. And I think, uh, for, uh, such a developed market now in Canada to still be facing this and still have idiotic policies, still have hikes of these taxes. I mean, it, it, 
are, are they learning anything? Because, you know, in the beginning, it was all the buzz, um, particularly amongst, you know, the stock market crowd, everybody l- watching the different stock tickers and seeing what the next one will be. Mm-hmm. We just never had that you know, really come to fruition. We had it in the beginning when people were speculating, but it's, uh, at least when I'm looking at my portfolio, it hasn't been, uh, hasn't, hasn't <laughs> brought what was promised. No, I mean, most of these companies are still underwater. Um, they're just buried in debt and they can't market their products appropriately. They can't diversify their product classes appropriately. There are all sorts of changes that could be made literally at the stroke of a pen to still ensure safety and prevent youth access and all of the important parts, but really just open up the market so that it's treated more like alcohol, Um, which, I mean, if your goal is to stamp out the black market, that's the way you got to do it. Um, It's really, that's the simplest way to, to take that 50% and turn it into 80%, 85%. Are we going to get there? I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm a little disillusioned with um, the liberals' ability to have any sort of self-reflection on bad policy, um, but we'll see. Yeah, and we'll have some good news on the alcohol front. You mentioned that, uh, particularly in North Carolina, because uh, there's actually some very good reforms headed our way. Uh, so we'll get to that uh, next week. Uh, but for the next segment, we'll be speaking with Alan Konevsky, CEO of T Zero. Uh, David, talk to you next week. Yeah, until next week. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. Very delighted to continue on. We've been talking everything DeFi banking. We've been talking crypto, crypto regulation. We've heard about all the kooky statements by Senator Warren and many other legislators, lawmakers, and financial regulators. We decided to continue to reach out to the entrepreneurs who are making things happen in the crypto space. And I'm very excited to have the interim CEO and chief legal officer of T-Zero, Mr. Alan Konevsky. Mr. Konevsky, Alan, welcome to the program. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. All right, let's just go down into it. I'd love to hear about uh, T-Zero, but first I want to kind of get the hot news. We've had sort of the SEC chairman has been before Congress. We've had a lot of comments from senators, from regulators, legislators. There's all kinds of spooky, scary, scary stories about how to regulate crypto. We hear it's all about scams. We hear it's all about the little guy getting squeezed out. Um, from your position, uh, someone who's heading up one of these companies, what is a, a sort of smart approach to dealing with regulation? And what do you think the SEC is missing out on right now? Yeah, no, thank you. And look, I... T0 has had a compliance-led approach to the digital space from its inception. We believe that the secular long-term perspective on the digital evolution on DeFi involves working in partnership with our policymakers, with our regulators, with the industry to shape intelligent regulation. I think that's a start point. And I think folks who come at it from a perspective of all or nothing are going to missing the point to your question. So the the right answer here and the answer that you wanna hear as an innovator in the space for the long-term is intelligent regulation. So when Chairman Gensler 
talks about themes like that, it resonates with us. We agree with it. T0 has been operating a regulated digital securities trading venue for a number of years. Uh, and our approach to digital innovation has been regulation led. It means we work incrementally, iteratively, step by step uh, as, we, as we advance the industry to sort of the long-term vision of a digitally native self-regulating value ecosystem that sits on the global signal technology layer where users interact with minimal to no intermediation. But we realize it's an incremental journey and we wanna have productive, constructive, intelligent regulation that gets us there. And I know that uh, a lot of the uh, sort of debate comes on definitions and uh, whether it'll be this regulatory agency or that. And one often looks at securities and whether uh, specific cryptocurrencies or crypto projects can be considered uh, securities. I did see, I believe it was on uh, one of your social media pages, uh, there's a discussion about NFTs and whether they should be considered as securities. If we're to go down the route of intelligent regulation, uh, does that mean that Bitcoin should be a security, should be considered property, like in some European countries? Uh, what is sort of the best answer on that? So a couple of questions. One is, I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, and you know, depending on your perspective, you can add a number of other cryptocurrencies into, into that topic, including some stable coins, are probably not securities. And even if folks wanted to reopen that debate, at least with respect to Bitcoin and Ethereum, that window has passed. And I think there's secular recognition, including in political and regulatory circles, that at least with respect to Bitcoin and Ethereum, the topic about them being regulated securities or regulated commodities has passed. Now, that, that same thought process doesn't apply to products that derive their value by reference to Bitcoin and Ethereum. You've seen some of these topics play out with respect to crypto lending products, for example. So where the product itself, there's arguments that are being made by federal and state regulators is a security. But at least for some crypto, Bitcoin and ETH are good examples. I think the ship on that has sailed, which by the way, is why there's political conversation in Washington um, uh, that talks about creating a new regime that would govern at a minimum secondary trading type issues uh, around consumer access to these types of instruments. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to everything. And you've heard Chairman Gensler say that he believes that there's a fair number of digital assets out, out there, including a number of cryptocurrencies, a big number, a little number. And it's, you know, that's an open question that he thinks are uh, fall within the definition of a security as the U.S. Supreme Court uh, handed that down, you know, interpreting U.S. securities laws in 1946. Um, and so, uh, and the same conversation applies to NFTs, where very exciting topic. I think digitization of assets, you know, I have little kids, they probably have more toys now that are virtual than a physical. And that, right, that familiarity, that acceptance will continue. I have no reason to think that as adults, it's, for them, it's gonna be any different. You know, I still got a bookcase, they won't. And so, uh, so I, think, I, think, I think that, you know, that trend where you talk about this value ecosystem, it's not gonna be just stocks and cash 
it's going to be assets and NFTs is another asset. Now, there are some features that make NFTs attractive at scale now, like fractionalizing ownership, like sharing economics creatively, that make them likely a security under the rules as they exist now. And if that's the case, then they have to be issued and traded in the way that in the way that securities are. And so that's the direction of travel of these conversations. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with the interim CEO and chief legal officer of T Zero, Alan Konevsky. Alan, if I had a, another kind of question here, uh, sort of the big new innovative feature of, of many of the the kind of crypto markets is decentralized finance, DeFi. Uh, We've spoken with a few other experts on this topic. It's something that uh, we find very fascinating, uh, the ability to have interest-bearing accounts, to be able to do loans, to be able to do all kinds of trading on this. It seems like it's fun. It seems like it's interesting, uh, but it doesn't necessarily fit into the normal pegs of many of the financial instruments uh, that we might have in the U.S. or, or around the world. What do you sort of see as, as the way forward for this? Is this something that will take additional regulation? Is this going to be you know a couple more thousand pages that we discuss under an infrastructure bill? Or is there a simpler way to imagine how we can have safe and intelligent regulation of DeFi and decentralized finance? No, it's a great question, Alan. Look, I, um, I think that part of the challenge, you know, we get really excited by the vision by the philosophy of DeFi. The same thing applies to digital and blockchain and, uh, and, 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 and this universe generally. Um, but it's really hard to regulate philosophy. And so when, re- when regulators say that, right, you don't regulate DeFi, you regulate specific products, hyper-specific products and services that are that come out of that ecosystem. So again, when we talk about this vision of, you know, SEC Commissioner Peirce in a, in a talk that she was giving on the panel a few weeks ago, talked about the quote beauty of the smart contract, this the self-regulating natively digital representation of values I mentioned before that sits on a on the single technology layer that enables users to interact with products and services with you know, minimal intermediation, right? You know, that's, that's a vision, but what are these specific products and services like, including in DeFi? You know, particularly products and services that come out of the technological DNA, right? Interest, unlike being a construct of fractional reserve banking and commercial lending in traditional finance, interest to some extent is built into the DNA of cryptocurrencies, right? Staking, right? It's built into, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's built into the foundational functional DNA of how, of how these products work. And so that's very exciting, but there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? It's hard for people to design specific products and services under regulatory uncertainty and make capital allocation decisions and investment decisions. Um, and, and it's also hard for regulators to regulate DeFi, right? You can't, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's metaphysical. So the industry I think needs to be better. Now I've spoken publicly about this before, needs to be better at coming up with specific products, specific use cases, um, you know, recognizing the uncertainty, recognizing the risk of hindsight guessing by the regulators um, and put that in, and put that in front of them. I think that's you know that's a way to unblock that, and that's how you get to intelligent regulation. 
So let's talk about T0. Um, obviously, I believe that your ability to stick to the, the rules and regulations are very stringent. Uh, I actually couldn't open up my own account using my mailing address, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I know that you know there are, there are many different platforms out there. Uh, there are, are many that people have flocked to. Some you know prefer to just stick with their cold storage and will just buy their crypto on the side. Why is T0 different? And what do you think are the most prominent kind of use cases for your platform? First of all, I'm sorry we couldn't have you as a customer. I think uh, our our Canadian footprint is a topic that's very important to me, and we've we've addressed it through partnerships with locally regulated broker dealers on the security side, and we're thinking through our next step in order to have a compliant presence in Canada, both for securities and cryptocurrencies. Although the two worlds are very con convergent, at least in Canada at this point, at least. Um, I. Uh, I would say that T0's focus has been on bringing a holistic user experience across a range of digital assets, leading with digitizing securities, private securities first, public securities to follow. It takes longer to transform public markets, but private securities, uh, public cryptocurrencies uh, and really you know, uh, and really providing a holistic user experience, one-stop shopping, no five apps, one app, one, one web interface that enables uh, investors and users to trade and operate across a range of assets, whether they're digital private securities, whether they are cryptocurrencies, whether they're public stocks, whether they're NFTs or at least NFT securities, uh, potentially non-security NFTs as well, whether it's other products and services as we think through uh, this new ecosystem that again, you talk about DeFi, right? Step by step, the old has to live with the new. And so, uh, you know, when we get to the, to the world vision of a range of products and services and activities operating seamlessly, on the global technology layer, sort of like what internet did to data and voice, we have to do that through regulated services and regulated products. But at a minimum, we want to harmonize user access for now. And so that's that's our priority. But we're not just a B2C company, we're also a B2B company and we provide tokenization services to issuers. We provide a regulated uh, uh, securities trading platform uh, for broker dealers. We're thinking through our crypto institutional footprint, including on the execution and routing side. And so um, it's, uh, you know, I don't know what the future is going to look like five, 10 years from now, but I, I know that the best we can do now is to, is to advance the narrative, advance a political dialogue, operate kind of step-by-step uh, uh, rung, rung by rung on the ladder, continue to be compliant and continue to push the conversations about, about how much role can technology play and, wh and why technology is as good or better than the intermediated trust regulated ecosystem that we relied on for decades and centuries, which was fine when it worked, but technology can do it better. Who would you say are your biggest competitors in the space right now? Look, I think there are very few folks now that are actively looking at the holistic cross-asset platform. 
So I'd have to segregate our businesses, right? I, you know, I can talk about Robinhood on the security side. I can talk about Coinbase on the crypto side. I can talk about companies like Forge and Carta X on the private security side. But when you really talk about bringing everything together from a consumer perspective, from a from an institutional perspective, uh, you know, I think what we're doing something is really new and uh, and unique and sticky. Yeah, and I think one interesting part is that tokenization uh, that you were mentioning, because I see that there are a number of companies, and they, I assume they're publicly listed, but these are private firms that seem to be able to get a token upon your platform. They're able to be sort of converted into a digital security. Uh, how does that process work? Are, are people coming to you with, with the plans, with the ideas? Is it very difficult to do so? I ask that question because in the normal crypto space, we always preach, you know, decentralization. Uh, if a company w is interesting in perhaps tokenizing uh, their product or their company themselves, how does that normally work? What's that process like? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I think it flows through a, a couple of channels. We have a terrific business development team that is very plugged in with a couple of categories of companies, right? They're late stage private companies that are ripe for secondary liquidity. Don't wanna go public yet, but are ripe for secondary liquidity. As I mentioned, the private securities liquidity market has been broken for years. And so we're fixing it and we're fixing it in a way that allows us to leverage blockchain technology. So there are companies like that, then they're innovative companies that just raise capital and wanna provide liquidity to the issuers quickly, like Exodus that launched on our platform uh, last week, uh, very innovative global cryptocurrency, uh, cryptocurrency wallet uh, services provide. Um, there are other over-the-counter or private companies that have regulatory or other priorities to, uh, to provide continuous automated liquidity to their investors. Their project sponsors, real estate is a good example, but not the only one who think they can reduce their cost of funding and cost of capital by not locking up their investors for five to 10 years, but allowing them to trade when they can under the regulations. And so there are you know, a number of pockets across types of industries that our team talks to. I think uh, companies from these circumstances come to us directly. We've signed a number of partnerships, um, channel partnerships with uh, folks in the industry that, um, that serve as a pipeline to us as well. And so the technology, the technology we've developed, our tokenization protocol is, um, is sort of tech agnostic and we can, you know, we can operate in blockchain agnostic. We can, uh, we can operate with, you know, fairly innovative solutions across a number of chains. The Exodus token that I mentioned is, is actually has an Ethereum wrapper around an algorand based smart contract. And so, um, you know, which is, uh, um, is, 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 is proof as we kind of, you know, you mentioned decent, decentralization, centralization, you know, the, the starting point of, of, of course, blockchain and DeFi was decentralization. And so as the industry has been working its way through, how do you get from X to Y, recognizing that the steps in between are gonna involve some accommodation and some old and new, you've seen centralization, including, um, including in organizational centralization with big custodians, right? I mean, you know, most people now hold their, hold their crypto with a custodian. Our customers do that. We've made that change recently. 
um, uh, you know, as, as well as other companies in the industry, certainly in the US. And the same thing with technology standards as well. There's sort of gravitation to a couple of leading standards, but you know, there are other innovative chains that are that are developing. And you know, our our focus is to be as evergreen and ever present as we can. Um, and uh, and again, the industry will go through a development where you start with philosophy, you figure out how to get to that vision step-by-step step, uh, that may involve some adjustments, including around the, you know, centralization concepts and custody and things like that, that, you know, we think delivers a better product uh, to the, to our users, at least given under the current environment, um, as well as, as well as uh, the different, uh, the, uh, the evolution of technology protocols as well. And I, I'm, what I'm kind of guessing and, and what I'm looking at, you know, having gone through the website, done the research, uh, sort of seen some of the products, uh, in a way, this is sort of a stepping stone for many traditional companies to also kind of get involved in this economy, which I find interesting, while still providing that space for consumers. Uh, I would not have been a good researcher without doing my own uh, research here. And we all we have to do is go through your CV a little bit, uh, previously at MasterCard, at Goldman Sachs. What must your former friends and colleagues think about what you're doing now? Are they running scared? Is there are there other conversations about what's happening in this finance space? What what do you kind of see as uh, what you're hearing from from some of your former colleagues uh, and people you used to work with? Look, I love how you uh, how you phrase the question, you know, and thank you for doing the research. You said now, right? So when I when I uh, made the transition um, uh, in 2018. I think the feedback would have been, you know, more along the lines of, well, you know, you know, what is this ecosystem about exactly? I think we've reached the secular inflection point about the recognition of the power of digital architecture for sort of money 2.0, value 2.0. MasterCard minted an NFT last week, right, and is going to be given away as a promotion. Um, you know it's wild stuff. And so, and I have tremendous amount of respect for my colleagues and friends. Um, and, you know, uh, MasterCard bought up CypherTrace, a cybersecurity, um, uh, uh, you know, crypto focused company, right? And so that's, you know, that's a tremendous, so things are thinking about, people are thinking about, you know, what does it mean from, from, a payments rail perspective or a product des uh, design perspective or an asset class perspective. So I think the secular recognition of, yeah, this is here, this has potential, not just as an, an investable or a speculative asset class, but as technology rails and the coins that power those technology rails that are gonna transform finance and value. Um, and ultimately how people interact with each other in the more direct, democratic, open, transparent way. That's, you know, so I think, I think, I think folks are not surprised anymore. And, you know, whether, whether and how people carve out their niche and relevance, you know, including with private crypto, including with central bank digital currencies, we haven't talked about that, but kind of digitization of fiat money is, is an area where I think you're going to see a lot of larger institutions um, participating in some fashion, um, including banks and payments companies, 
uh, whether as as you know partnering with with the various governments or interacting with that ecosystem in some in some way. By the way, designing central bank digital currencies very important project. You know my uh, and 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 one that I support. My two hopes are one that when we design it in the US or when you guys design it in Canada, you do so recognizing the values of your society, including with respect to privacy and, uh, and, uh, um, and, uh, and freedom and these other kinds of, kinds of things that really need to be taken into account super seriously when you think about central bank digital currencies, because that's a very powerful tool. And number two, that, that private cryptos coexist with that ecosystem. And so, but how big companies carve out their niches and relevance here, you know, you're going to see them, you're going to see them develop it, but I don't think anyone is laughing anymore. Yeah, definitely. And I should clarify, I'm still a U.S. citizen, so I'm still paying all those taxes and, and paying uh, as the Federal Reserve prints out. <laughs> uh, but one, I guess if I could, if I could almost push back on that, looking at particularly the central banks, uh, you know, making some kind of digital uh, version of the currency, in a way... We've had this independence of the Federal Reserve from the Congress. This is sort of how things were set up, you know, over 100 years ago. And now many politicians have grown very reliant upon the ability of the Fed to lend out money, to print money. Uh, and, you know, we're going to go through this conversation throughout the next couple of weeks about raising the debt ceiling. Do you not see some danger as well? And I understand that you're uh, following the regulations and... Uh, I'm more apt to criticize uh, many uh, who would be in the political or financial elite. But do you not see sort of a, you know, a problem area to where if there are digital currencies that are uh, sort of held and owned by the central banks that we ha are basically have to use those? Do you not see that there would be an issue when it comes down to the ability to save that essentially this would just be a way to continue inflation on and we wouldn't really have a hedge against it? I, I agree that, so I think, you know, whether and how it might impact the government's ability to, you know, uh, uh, handle monetary policy differently or fiscal policy different is an open, it, I think the government can do a lot now with kind of traditional fractional reserve system to inflate and deflate economies. Uh, and so, you know, whether or not central bank digital currencies are going to make that you know, I'm going to impact that, you know, that's, that's a separate question. I think, you know, from the direction of travel that you're coming from, the government is sort of there already and they can do, you know, they can do a lot. And so um, it's going to give them added tools in terms of transparency and control, which is why I said, when you're designing central bank digital currencies, and I agree with you, very sensitive, very important topic, you got to design it, keeping in mind the values of your society because the amount of transparency, uh, insight, control over economy at a microscopic level. You've talked about macro topics, right? Um, uh, uh, inflating or deflating the monetary supply, interacting with the banking system, et cetera. This allows government and regulators to interact in real time with the economy at a micro level without it having to flow through the regulated intermediaries like banks and others. That uh, that the that the government does, including through the Federal Reserve System in the United States, and so uh, or broker dealers or or other regulated intermediaries. So that's where you know that's where I think the challenge lies to ensure that the system doesn't uh, uh, introduce 
a level of control that is not consistent with us as a society. That's what I wanted to hear. They can't have that too much control. Uh, we've had enough of that uh, throughout around. All right. I'd love to, to ask more questions, but this is radio and we, we have to kind of cue it over to the sponsors. So I do have to thank Mr. Alan Konevsky, interim CEO and chief legal officer at T-Zero. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the radio program. Thank you for having me. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S and David at Clement Liberty and find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.